I would like to welcome everyone to the Roxborough Roundtables. My name is Brianna Reese and I'm the student director of the tables. Today our topic is, if climate change is real, why the skepticism? Our host today is Professor Megan Fuller. She is an environmental engineer and geochemist with a background in water quality and water remediation. I'm going to turn it over to Professor Fuller at this time. Hey everybody, welcome. Thank you so much for coming. This is going to be, I think, at least exciting for me. I hope exciting for everyone else who's listening in. Um, uh, Brianna did a great job introducing me. There's not really much else to say. I've been at Philadelphia University um, coming up on one year as a full-time faculty member. My research is in water quality and water remediation, but I also have um, interest in the intersection between water and climate. Uh, and I'm particularly intrigued by today's topic. Um, and what we as scientists and people in the scientific community can do um, to discuss skepticism. So um, I guess we'll start by going around and we'll all introduce ourselves. Um, so we'll start uh, over here. Hi, my name is Beth Cheryl. I'm an assistant professor in graphic design. And what brings me here today is I'm doing a project with our senior graphic design students um, with an organization here in Philadelphia called CUSP. And so our students are tasked with developing some sort of something um, to help Philadelphians prepare for a hotter weather in Philadelphia because of climate change. Uh, my name is Linda. I'm a, a senior sustainability student. And here are some questions. <laughs> I'm Colin Murphy. I'm a first year communications major. I'm Ann Blauer. I'm a professor um, of biology and I'm an ecologist. And I've done a lot of research on the impact of climate change on native plant and animal stands in Philadelphia. I'm Margaret Stevens. I'm on the faculty of Community College of Philadelphia teaching environmental conservation and geography. And I've worked with study abroad programs with environmental themes. And I am an advisor for our student environmental abroad grant. Hi, I'm Lewis Houston. I'm just becoming a senior here. I'm in the EB program. I'm here for leadership and emergency management but I'm very interested in environmental science. Um, try to stay aware of it, stay sharp. So that's why I'm here today. Hey, I'm Frank Wilkinson. I'm a biological chemist, and I'm the director of the biology program. Wonderful. All right, thanks. What a, what a great group we have. This is going to be really pretty exciting. So um, as the topic suggests, um, overwhelmingly scientists uh, agree that the climate is changing at, in an unprecedented way at an unprecedented rate. Um, but yet in the face of that uh, overwhelming scientific agreement, um, the skepticism persists um, and maybe strengthens. Um, there are some prevailing theories about uh, why the skepticism is alive and well. And I was wondering if anyone in here wanted to start off the conversation about why you think there is this skepticism present, particularly um, in America, uh, although, as Margaret has said, she works abroad with these issues, and I know that Linda just came back from Copenhagen, and I would love to hear an international perspective about skepticism around the topic of climate change. So anybody have any theories on why climate change is such a bitter pill to swallow here in America? Well, one, um, one reason I think there is is because, and I'm speaking from like a smaller scale, I'm not talking about like international, but like in my own community, I know a lot of people aren't really, they're not fully aware aware of what's going, like environmental issues around them. So it's kind of like this far out <coughs> where it's kind of like, oh, it's not going to touch me. And it just becomes like this, this kind of like a, a, almost like a joke, like something to just 
play around with just because they're not getting like the, the proper knowledge. Like they're not fully like really aware of, hey, this can affect me or me littering can affect, it's just like a chain effect. I think change is very hard. If change at the scale that needs to happen is particularly challenging, um, it means that we're gonna have to change uh, massive infrastructure. And that's expensive, takes a lot of planning, and we have to have a lot of buy-in from a lot of different stakeholders. And if you don't have buy-in from those stakeholders and they don't want to change, then it's going to be very difficult. And I think a lot of the skepticism comes from that. So, yes, so this is Margaret uh, Stevens from Community College of Philadelphia. I think part of the international perspective is important to keep in mind. We tend to think in the United States that we are the center of the universe, first of all. And actually, there's very little debate among the public in most other countries of the world. Unfortunately, it has become a politicized issue, that is, climate change has become a politicized issue, but it needn't be that. And in fact, if we look at our own history, much of the environmental legislation that we live with today occurred under Republican administrations in the 1970s, under Richard Nixon, and some of them under Ronald Reagan. So what has become a very polarized issue should not be, need not be, and we need to get back to the place where we can respect science and respect information, just as we do with medicine. Most people would not be skeptical if their doctor told them that something was a health risk, but yet they seem to be skeptical if there's science related to something which they already have a position on. Although I think that's an interesting point, this is Megan Fuller again, that's an interesting point, but I almost see the erosion now reaching into medicine, mm -hmm. right, with anti-vaccines and concerns about um, uh, other things, and so this erosion against science is interesting. Um, does anyone else have any other theories? There's a prevalent theory that hasn't been mentioned yet. I'll mention it in a minute if no one says it, which I think is so interesting, but. Well, I don't, I, I can't speak to the theories per se, but one of the things that our classes have discussed a lot is that um, a, a feeling of helplessness amongst so many where they, they understand the concept of climate change, but they don't necessarily understand something so big and scary could actually they could even have an impact in any way shape or form um and so that has been a challenge and how to not approach this project from a like doom and gloom and fear and end of the world perspective but give people like positive ways and i guess doable ways to, to face climate change i'm sure that that fits into a theory perhaps i'm not familiar with the yeah no that's name. no that's i think significant reason why people don't have the capacity and aren't sure how to engage with the issue. Um, I think going back to like smaller communities, um, I know the town where I'm from, it's primarily Chinese and Mexican residents, so there is a real lack of like, communication education between the city and those residents. Like For example, um, I'm from California, so obviously the water drought over the past few years. Um, there was a kind of like promotion in the city to conserve water and everything, and they had a lot of posters and signs around the city, but everything was in, in English, besides maybe one large poster in Chinese and Spanish. So I think that is a um, kind of one of the reasons why there's a lot of skepticism. Evan Lane, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. This uh, narrative has been created for political and economic reasons. 
uh, that climate change is not real. Uh, we had the senator, I won't dignify him, I think his name was the chairman of the committee, who actually came in with a snowball in his hand and said in front of the Senate, one of our leaders, in fact, was the chairman, that how could there be global warming? I found snow on the way to my car. And he actually said that. And there are people, yeah, there's snow out there. How could there be climate change? So you have this anti-intellectualism, but I think it's really supported by the fact that he said, it's going to cost too much money, as Anne said. And there's economic interests out there supporting these people, putting forth a narrative that it's all nonsense. Uh, they don't want to lose the money. The other part of it is, is there is some basis, in fact, for people to distrust experts, especially in weather-related topics. Um, we've had, and that's the media's fault, how much terror did we have on the television about the so-called hurricane that was coming that never came. And I think they have, have, there was a great snowfall that was supposed to happen mm -hmm. a couple of years ago that never happened. So people are saying, yeah, they don't know anything about weather anyway. So the people with the economic interests are playing upon that distrust in order for them not to pay the money necessary to keep us all from getting flooded over. Mm -hmm. So I think it's the economics, the anti-intellectualism, and the failure on many times of, of science to uh, be right. Mm -hmm. okay, can I just uh, follow on to and probably this is Frank Wilkinson? Um, I think the success of the narrative uh, draws on natural aspects of human psychology. And the, the skepticism that we see for climate change is not new. If you look back through history about our evolving understanding of the world around us, it is met continually with a great deal of resistance. You know, the, the Earth is not the center of the universe. That was a hard pill to swallow. Um, you know, the, the, the fixture of species, right, and the young Earth, and uh, even more modern examples of, you know, things like plate tectonics was met with a great deal of skepticism early on. So I think, I think, you're, I think the, the narrative builds upon patterns of our behavior and understanding that are very natural to us. I don't think that we have to be taught this skepticism. I think it's part of our psychology. And I think that the success that people have had with that narrative points to that, that natural aspect of our behavior. Mm -hmm. um, this is Megan Fuller again. I think these are all, these are profoundly interesting points of view. You've touched on a lot of the prevailing theories that are out there um, about um, why the skepticism persists. One that was only tangentially spoken about by Evan, the um, anti-intellectualism. Um, so if you poll a lot of scientists, and we have several in the room, lots of them will say that it's a, a, a general American's inability to understand complex science. They say that there is a level of um, you know, lack in, in their scientific preparation and then their scientific literacy. And so that really didn't rise up in this conversation. No one here really cited that, which is interesting because I was then going to talk to you about a study that um, sort of disproves that anyway, that in fact, uh, Americans aren't actually that bad at science. We do have a pretty good understanding of the world around us. Physical science is taught you know, with some success in our K through 12 programs. Um, and so there's been a lot of research recently um, to disprove this idea that it's in some kind of profound incapability on Americans' intellectual um, prowess. So I'm pleased that you all already knew that, so we don't have to discount that for those in the room, so good for you. Um, all of the other things, though, the, the psychology of being skeptical, um, the distrust of media and media's um, 
almost inherent need. I mean, they are fueled by advertising dollars, which happen when people watch commercials, which happen when you tune in. So the more fantastical um, the news, then the more you're going to have viewership. And that breeds um, false stories, right? Exaggerations, and then, and then that leads to mistrust. So that certainly plays a big part. Um, so the other part of this is if science change or if climate change is real and, and the skepticism sort of is going to persist anyway, what do we as responsible citizens and responsible scientists need to do to help everyone prepare um, rather than just running around trying to shove climate change down their throats and make them believers, right? We can help mitigate climate change and we can begin to help adaptation towards climate change without having everybody amongst us be believers. Um, so what do you all think about messaging? How would you want to communicate to citizens around us, um, presuming that we're not going to debate climate change anymore, but instead we're going to begin to address it, maybe on, in an unspoken way or maybe in a redirected way, if that makes sense. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, this is Margaret again. I think we have a real opportunity because there's so many things that need to be done anyway. So for example, <laughs> Um, if we look at Philadelphia and our water infrastructure, our sewer system is really old. It needs to be replaced. We need to do a lot more. The city has wisely chosen to approach it by putting more green surface infrastructure in place so that we will not have to dig up the streets and spend billions of dollars redoing sewer pipes and so forth. So in so doing, we are doing adaptation. <coughs> and at the same time, we might have some mitigation strategies that is lessening the effects of climate change, we're doing things when we green to improve the environment overall. So we can totally sidestep the debate about climate change. Just another quick example would be air pollution. I think most people would agree that air pollution hurts our health, costs us money, and so forth. They may disagree about what's causing air pollution, but they probably don't disagree that we should do something about it to improve our public health and clean that. Here's the problem. As you said, we're not the center of the universe. And you have an American company producing widgets, for example, and they have these environmental regulations that cost them money. In China or India, they're producing the same widgets for less money because there aren't the same environmental regulations. So the people here who will say, why should we do that? We're not being competitive anymore. And when you have a post-citizens united United States where money controls in many circumstances politics, that's why we don't do that. Well, I would just simply say, just very quickly, that we still need to do it to improve our own individual city's public health. So there's reason to, to clean up our air for, for that reason alone, without getting into the economics of where we might do a manufacturing plant. This is Colin. I think that with the fact that we have different environmental regulations worldwide, what we have been doing through international organizations is hold other countries responsible. Uh, we've made China pledge to cut emissions by 2020. And I think if we go towards using more of that and keeping other countries accountable, we would be we would have an international opus to do it ourselves. So I think if this becomes something that we can do competitively at the international level and make it something that these regulations are an international kind of, um, uh, an international goal that we are striving towards, then it'll 
it'll help propel certain countries uh, and make sure that uh, like everybody is you know on the same page when it comes to uh, climate change regulations. So this is uh, Anne. Uh, I agree with you strongly. Um, we had in 1997 the Kyoto Protocol that we signed. Um, the United States did not sign it. Many other countries did. Most of Europe did and proceeded and made huge changes um, in 1997, which happens to be a long time ago. Um, the current talks that have happened internationally keep failing. However, the two countries that really absolutely need to do something, which is China and the United States, are the two biggest countries, have actually started to talk, which is really good. Globally, we have, as a as a earth, worked on other big environmental pro problems successfully. And the Montreal Protocol with ozone is an example of that, where it really has come together slowly, but really has come together as, um, as something that could happen. So that's a great idea. And what you said about the fact that it was under a Republican, that was done with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, two very conservative people who led the way. So it, the political thing could come together. Um, it's just a huge question mark with climate change, why the US simply is stuck. <laughs> this is an interesting side note. Margaret and I attended an American Meteorological Society meeting um, where we talked about climate change. And one of the presenters there was um, the, an old director of Goddard, was it? NASA Goddard? And Yanaldi was his last name, and he was one of the first scientists to discover the hole in the ozone layer. And he came to present on climate science, just to give us a nice solid foundation on climate science. And when someone in the group asked him if he thought we could rally like we did around the ozone hole, is it possible for us to get on top of this in a meaningful way? Margaret, do you recall his response? Not exactly. He oh. said, no, I don't think that we can. I am happy that I'm old. I don't think this is going to go well for us. But I will right, say, right <laughs> <laughs> on that note, see you guys. So when prevailing, you know, when leading scientists say to a group of other scientists, and he was there when you know we rather on the ozone hole, I, he he is he just doesn't see the kind of um, political mobility, the sort of um, bipartisanism, you know, that's going to, or the anti-partisanism that's going to get us to come together. Um, he, he was concerned. And there were others, uh, scientists from NOAA, of course, would stand up and say, no, there's a chance. We could still turn this around before we see a two to three degree change. You know, um, it might be possible. It's going to be, uh, take a lot of um, effort on everybody's part, but, uh, but some of the scientists there from NASA and other places felt like uh, we had gone too far. Um, and this issue is too politically polarized. So one prevailing theory about why there is skepticism persistent in the United States is that we are becoming a country, I think this presidential election has shown us, of incredibly polarized political opinions. There, the distance between the right and the left is vast. But wait point. a minute. Well, I, I, want, I don't want to get too depressed about this, for one thing. Okay, And yeah. also, the, the point that Beth made about the, 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 um, the presidents under Republican administrations leading the way, in fact, it was the public that forced them to lead the way. They mm -hmm. went kicking and screaming. But the reason they signed those, that, those le pieces of legislation is because the public demanded it, and they couldn't not do it. Mm -hmm. So, and if you think on a, a separate issue entirely, if you see that we, this, our country hit a tipping point with re 
regard to same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage in a very short time once, I mean, it took a very long time for that to develop, but once it started happening, it was state after state after state and finally at the federal level. So I think that we do have the potential to make that change, mm -hmm. that we, uh, we need a different kind of potential. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we need the education to really understand <coughs> what's going down. Now, I don't have the background, the scientific background, so when you say two to three degrees, I know so what, so it's 98 to 95. Mm -hmm. And I don't think those people to mobilize the public I think they need to know, maybe this would be a nice opportunity, what it means if there's a three to two to three degree change in average. And yeah. is, if that happens, what would be the ramifications? So so that's a good question, and I could talk about those ramifications, and then that would become sort of doom and gloom. And, and I don't think Margaret's wrong, actually. And Beth had said that her students sort of removed themselves from the conversation because it felt overwhelming, and it felt like a done deal, and it's too sad to think about. And then, as Frank pointed out, our psychology does not lend us to dwelling on kind of impossible problems. It's not the way the human psyche works. So what I would say is, I don't know that we're ever going to move the needle on climate change by telling people what a three-degree change looks like. I don't know if that's the right tack. So I say that because um, I have in my hand here a list of the public's policy priorities for 2015. Does anyone want to guess what the public in the United States, this is a Pew Research poll for 2015, is most concerned about all the kinds of public policies you can imagine about. The number one terrorism. terrorism. Jobs. Jobs is number three. Right after the economy, which one could imagine they're conflated. So terrorism and jobs. So I feel like we move the needle on climate change not by focusing on the degrees on the thermometer, but by understanding that we can discuss why terror is linked to climate, mm -hmm. why jobs are linked to climate, why education and, and social security are linked to climate. And so, you know, there's this other um, uh, theory called the bounded rational theory, which says that humans just aren't capable of understanding slow, distant change, right? We understand visceral immediacy. We need to eat, we need to find shelter. Um, we are, you know, at our core, very primal animals. Um, and so our ability to rationalize and become patient with really long-term problems is, is not our strong suit. Um, but if we can begin to link the importance of climate to the things that do feel immediate and do feel visceral, like terrorist attacks, you don't have to go very far into the climate literature to see that the Arab Spring is largely cited to be a climate event. There was political unrest in the Middle East, and the people became you know, uh, radically unsatisfied with their governments because they stopped being able to get access to food and water. And they lost access to food and water because they were having a horrible drought, which was brought about by swings in the climate. So we're not all going to come to the table because it's three degrees hotter, but we will come to the table if we don't have food and water. If we have political unrest that leads to you know, violent tendencies in the streets, um, that's going to show up. And those are the things that are going to rock our world personally um, and economically and politically. And it's never going to show up with the name tag climate on it. You know what I mean? Oh, here comes that climate again. It's going to be all those political things that we don't necessarily associate with. So I think the, the, you know, a strong way forward is to think about those things that move the public. And then as Margaret said, we're already doing uh, work to um, work on the sewer system. We do that because we need clean drinking water. And so now we're greening our infrastructure. We're getting benefit by doing all the other important work that we have to do. Um, so I don't know, thoughts on that theory? Thoughts on an idea of linking these things to more immediate more visceral um, 
This is Colin. I think that I definitely agree with that, and I certainly think that there are links between like hair and stuff. But I think another important part of uh, the way that we identify with politics and things like that is also identity politics. And if we could get people to identify with environmentalism and you know feel better about themselves for engaging with these issues, that that's certainly something that we should be doing. Um, I know that vegans and vegetarians, they strongly identify with like ecological issues because they look at animal agriculture and that it produces about like 40% of greenhouse gases. Um, and they feel better about themselves as a result of maintaining that diet. So I think uh, beyond you know just vegetarianism, veganism, I'm really curious as to how we could possibly tie environmental issues to identity politics and have people want to identify with them. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh can I go ahead? That's all right. spring water company. 
and the Department of Environmental Regulations came in and beat me up something terrible. Uh, my water was fine. It came from a natural spring and it was absolutely fine, but DER did not like what I was doing. Finally, had to wind up selling the company because I just couldn't continue to, to have it. And they made me feel like I'm some evil person, you know, doing some, some very evil, but yet they wanted me to pay for correcting it. Um, so I think if we bifurcate the issue and understand that the second half of it, there needs to be some uh, political sensitivity, political is not the right word, some sensitivity to how the people who were asking to go into their pockets and pay for it may not be evil people. I was not an, I guarantee you I was not, I was not an evil, I may be today, but I wasn't. <laughs> um, so that would be my suggestion, that, that when I saw the title, the reason I came here today, I thought the title was only half of the, should have been half of the title, mm -hmm. that you needed another half, and that's the half that we need to really address. Mm -hmm. No, I actually, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, so I recently gave a talk on campus about climate, um, and I think, and I just started under the supposition that our climate has always fluctuated, and let's talk within those realms. I don't know that we have to make it a hyperbolic crisis that man has wrought upon themselves through stupid and evil actions, right? We can have a conversation about the fact that we're headed to a greenhouse earth for the first time since man has been on the planet. That's going to be troubling enough. I mean, if we just talk about the science in those realms, no one has to be at fault. Nothing has to be bad or evil. It's going to get hotter. We're going to melt sea ice. We've done it before, right? And it will happen again. We circle between ice and, and greenhouse constantly. Um, so we are going to enter into a climate that we have not seen. We have been in a relative, I mean, man has evolved in relative climate stability. It just happens to be where we are in the cycle. Have we perturbed it? Have we worsened it? I would say yes, but I would also say that almost doesn't matter at this point um, because we're, you know, so we consume all of our all of our oil products. I mean, that's what we've been doing, and that's probably what we will continue to do. So the real question in my mind, and the thing that I'm interested in, is how do you prepare the people who live on the coasts so that they don't flood and die in the next storm surge? How do you prepare the farmers in rural West Africa so that they don't die in the next drought? I feel like there are human rights issues and environmental justice issues that go uncorrected because they have been painted now with this tarnished brush of climate change, which has become unfortunately polarized, I think exactly for the reasons that you've stated, which is, you know, we've called them horrible and terrible, when in fact they were just driving their cars because people sold them cars to drive, you know? They were functioning within the realm of society that was designed for us, and, and little did we know at the time it was a very harmful thing to do, but scolding us and, and painting us as evil isn't going to make us take care of the people on the coastlines, and it's not going to make us feel compelled to, to watch out for agriculture, you know, and to worry about food and water scarcity. So uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. That, that other part of the climate story is, is an unfortunate uh, byproduct of the way we tend to have reactionary and political responses to things. So, yeah, sorry, that was long. Who's next? Sorry, this is Beth. Um, so to kind of clear up what you were saying, um, and to, to bring it back to a local level and hopefully a positive one, um, in a conversation I had with uh, Christina Knapp from the Office, Office of Sustainability here in Philadelphia, um, she said that their approach, and I have it jotted down, is, is 
their budget is breaking it, broken it into what she calls four buckets. There's health, equity, environment, and economy. And so you touched a little bit on the equity side of things, but she very much thinks that they can push for sort of a greener economy by coming up with what she calls jobs, um, jobs because of sustainability. So that if we can develop, and again, I'm sort of stepping outside of my area of expertise, but if we can create more jobs that um, are more sustainably minded, that would help with these issues in climate change and hopefully offer opportunities that would uh, reach across that equity bucket. Um, that, that I mean, it, well, I guess what I'm saying is that it's cool to hear that here in Philadelphia we have people in the political realm thinking this way. Um, and so it's interesting to hear your perspective where you are a small business, you are trying to do something that is perhaps, you know, beneficial um, to the environment and you got so, you know, downtrodden that you called it quits. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that again, like we um, can move forward on this by creating these jobs. I mean, you don't have to look very far to see other countries that have done it really successfully. Germany is killing it right now, right? I mean, they, they have too much electricity. Um, they're, they're doing these amazing things and their economy is strong. And, and I think if we can stop the, the doom and the gloom, and if we can stop the- Where are you doing that their economy is strong? Oh, well, I'm sorry. I just mean their energy economy. I, yeah, oh, I'm not gonna okay. speak to their whole, yeah, no. But in, in, the, in the energy sector. Most, most residents of Germany would not agree yeah, yeah, no, I should specify. Yeah, I just mean it, it with regard to their energy sector. Um, they are, you know, at least more independent. I think what you're saying is we have to change the narrative. Yes. And that's what Hillel was getting to. Mm -hmm. if, we, if we're going to waste our time saying, if he's a fool, she's a fool, we're wasting our time. Right. When somebody's drowning, he's not going to argue why he's drowning. Yep. He wants mm -hmm. the damn rope. Yeah. Okay, so I think at this point, we have to change the narrative. Yeah. That's what it's up. Philadelphia, as you said, that is changing the narrative. And that's what we have to do. And if we waste our time on this nonsense, yeah. we're going to drown. Yeah. Stupid. Yeah. Um, oh, wait, I'm sorry. Uh, over here. And that's uh, what I was getting to as well. If you change the narrative, the United States simply likes um, negative narratives. Yeah. So yeah. change the narrative. That's true. Yeah, I'd like to pick up on that because I think we would be naive to think that there aren't are not some evildoers out there, mm -hmm. and you only need to look at the playbook of the uh, tobacco industry and how they <coughs> shed doubt mm -hmm. for a very long time about the relationship between cigarette smoking and health. Well, an Exxon, right? I mean, so <laughs> but that very same playbook, and there's some books out there. Naomi Klein is one of the authors that I think is worth looking at. Um, who spell out that very playbook and some of the same actors, Sanger is one of them, yeah. now represents a fossil fuel industry, and they're doing the same thing. So there, there are actors out there that are purposely misleading and casting doubt in the public. And I think we that know something about that do have an obligation to call them out when that happens. And also just keep in mind that polluters should pay. If all of us pay for the messes we make as individuals, somebody else's yard up without paying for it. Why not call companies to, to task on the same thing? Oh, quick
quick, I'm just going to piggyback off that. I think that's also a question of scale. I think there's a way that we think about it in this country where we think individuals, um, like even if, even when I see someone getting their Hummer, I think to myself, ugh, you know? Like I think there's a, a, an issue of scale here where painting people with a, a negative brush uh, might not be useful one individual at a time. I think, you know, when you scale that up and you have Exxon, you know, obfuscating data that they've had since the 70s and 80s, then I think that's a, a different kind of calling someone to task, mm -hmm. uh, you know, elucidating their particular methods and, and drawing attention to that for the betterment of, of everyone moving forward and, and for the education of the public. Uh, sorry. several different things that we could continue to do. You don't have to get all the buy-in. So the EPA Energy Star program is an example of that, where it's changed how the energy use of all your appliances. You have no idea what it's done. You have no idea how much money it saves you and how much carbon dioxide it saves. So those are programs that are quietly going on in the background. We could do lots more of them. And there are other federal examples that are similar to that, um, that have on a big, and this is where doing things where it is a big scale matters. The big scale matters. Uh, this is Colin. Um, I think that going across like the federal uh, programs, I think that if we have federal programs that incentivize good behavior at the business level, corporate, and small business level, um, and we can get them to think that they're benefiting from being sustainable to the point where if they're a good company that's being environmentally sustainable, they're being rewarded for it with like lower taxes, less uh, regulatory uh, finances that they have to deal with, then I think they will then become key players in holding the bad, the bad uh, players accountable. Uh, if people, if businesses are personally benefiting from it, they're going to be incentivized to hold uh, their competition accountable to the same types of uh, issues that they think that is good for their own good. So we're heading, thank you, that, we're heading into the end of our time here. I just have one last topic I'd like a few little bits of feedback on and then we can wrap up. But um, categorically, I think, and I, I believe Lewis spoke to this immediately when, um, when he first spoke was, um, there are neighborhoods and locations within the city where people don't know about climate change or aren't sure how to engage with it because they haven't received education about climate change. Um, or at least, or even climate science in general, right? It doesn't have to be a change in climate, but just climate in general. Um, it took forever, it feels like forever, but probably wasn't, to, to get evolution in most textbooks in most states, and even some states still co-teach this idea of, what. Intelligent, intelligent design, design creationism, yeah. kind of concurrent. Um, so we don't necessarily have the time um, to go through that ramp up to get climate education um, into our K-12 education. Certainly the government is trying, federal agencies, um, NOAA, 
um, NASA, they're producing um, education materials in the hopes that it will be adopted into public education. Uh, but certainly, I'm sure in the Philly K-12 system, uh, it's limited at best. Do you all have any ideas or um, sort of uh, thoughts on, on how to accelerate uh, the inclusion of this into organized uh, federal education? Content is controlled by school boards. School boards are responsible to people and the community. And I think that's local. And they're local. And it's, it's what you said earlier on. I think we're going to the Republican administration when the people's voice was loud enough, that's what happened. It was good uh, legislation. That's what we have to do. We have to go to our school board and we have to tell them we need to do this. Here's the literature. You have to be educated. We have to know so that when we demand things from our representatives, we're demanding smart things out of, out of a good base of people. Um, I, I see this as a worldwide issue, not a Philadelphia. I mean, I mean, we should do what we can do, and I, I, that, that's that's fine. But it's really, and the, my classes, Brianna will tell me this. My class, I, I feed on the United Nations all the time. We spend billions of dollars funding the environmental side of the United Nations, and I see absolutely no progress, at least in terms of what I'm able to pick up terms of what it's able to do on an international basis. We talked about China before being an issue, India, there, there are many other countries that, 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 that should, Mexico is another one that's a problem. A lot of South American countries are, are a serious problem. And, and the, the, what I'm concerned about is, you know, we, we pick a topic to beat on for a while, and then we stop beating on it and jump off to somebody else. Uh, there is, I mean, we created the United Nations to save us from war. Uh, they've expanded their sphere of influence over the years, and, 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 and that's fine if they do something. But they've got to jump into this situation, and really, you're talking about starting from the bottom up with Philadelphia. I'd like to see some of it starting from the top down from the United Nations. So I think... Any last thoughts, anything we didn't get to that people feel compelled to share or say? Not so gloomy at the end, maybe. I guess I want to just say that to wrap up, I think it's important that we do change the narrative. Um, no one wants to participate in something where they feel demonized. And so, I mean, no one wants to get in their car and feel really, really horrible about themselves. There's a way to move about um, promoting change in society uh, without... Um, without the doom and the gloom and the crisis. And it's, I think, unfortunate that I don't even say global warming now because that feels like such a stigmatized word because it was such a negative um, connotation in the media and beyond that I've moved to climate change. And even that feels like we're still carrying around this idea um, that there are, um, that we are all at fault and we've made a horrible mistake. And until we rectify that mistake, we can never get better. And in fact, I think we have to jump past all of that and just begin getting better through adaptation and mitigation. Um, and, and then in closing, I'd also say that education has to, it just has to be occurring in K through 12 schools uh, because our, you know, the next generation has to be wiser about this um, than, than we are and we were. So I guess we'll keep, keep working on that here at Philadelphia University. So, so thanks everybody for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.